the amazing thing about the mercy of God is that no hardness of heart is too severe for it. That's really good news. There's no enslavement to sin greater than the mercy of God. We're putting it all on the line that that is true. That the mercy of God is such that all of our many sins, past, present, and future, shall not overwhelm the saving, rescuing grace of God which has come to us in Christ. We're believing that by faith. We could never be good enough Christ in His atoning work is sufficient for us. The mercy of God is His compassion. It is His saving favor that doesn't treat a sinner according to what the sinner deserves. So the sinner deserves something, and then God has shown mercy instead of what the sinner deserves. Mercy rescues. Mercy forgives. Mercy embraces. You can't work for it. You're not entitled to it because God owes mercy to no one. When Charles Spurgeon was reflecting on the mercy of God, he was connecting it to the curtain torn at the temple when Jesus died. And I love Spurgeon's words here. He says, when Christ opened the Holy of Holies, he didn't make a little slit. But the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom so that the biggest sinner that ever lived might come through it to the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. Oh, the amazing mercy of God, Spurgeon says. It is good to stop and marvel at the mercy of God toward us. Reflecting on it humbles us, stirs our gratitude, fills us with hope. We're going to reflect on the mercy of God on this Lord's Day morning. Through the words of the Apostle Paul in verses 12 to 14 of 1 Timothy 1. We should connect these verses to what's preceded. In verses 12 to 14, we see verses that follow right on the heels of verse 11 where he's talked about the gospel. Notice in verse 11, he's talking about the gospel of the glory of God, the glory of the blessed God, With which, this gospel with which I have been entrusted. Paul's saying, I've been entrusted with this gospel. Now many translations at this point will have in the layout of the verses a subheading break. So mine does, like right above verse 12, I've got this little heading in the ESV. This is Christ Jesus came to save sinners. But verses 11 and 12 are not actually separated Not in the original text. We're we're thankful for the layouts of the scriptures and the translations which help us follow flows of thought. But we want to recognize that at the end of verse 11, Paul says, I've been entrusted with this gospel. And in verses 12 and following, immediately, he's going to reflect on how that happened. Because he wasn't always entrusted with the gospel. He wasn't someone who grew up believing in Christ Jesus or even as an adult would initially be a follower of Christ. That's not what his former life consisted of. When he was entrusted with the gospel, he says, here's how that happened. And in verses 12 through 17, which we'll look at part of this morning, in verses 12 to 17, he's going to reflect on being entrusted with this. And it's going to give Paul the opportunity to retell his testimony. People have heard it before. There are times where he travels in the book of Acts and on more than one occasion, Paul's testimony is given before leaders and governing authorities and he boldly tells them, here's what the grace of God did. But he also doesn't mind writing about it. 
He doesn't mind writing it in these letters, reflecting earlier in his ministry and now quite late into his ministry. Likely just a couple years before he will be martyred under the Roman Empire of Nero. He's going to reflect on the mercy of God toward him. And it's going to fill him with such joy of remembrance that in verse 17, he's going to offer a doxology to the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is so filled with joy that sometimes while he might reserve the end of a letter for a doxology, he doesn't get out of chapter one before he is praising God and giving glory to God. What has filled him and prompted such worship? What's filled Paul with such worship is remembering the mercy of God toward him. Verse 12 is Paul's thanksgiving. The first part of verse 13 is Paul's past. And then the rest of our passage this morning is Paul's testimony. His thanksgiving, his past, and his testimony. We benefit from hearing testimonies. We benefit from listening to one another reflect on the mercy of God at work in our lives. I need to hear about the grace of God at work in your life and vice versa. We benefit from the mercy of God in each other's lives because it strengthens us. It leaves us at once, and once again marveling at the sovereign grace of God at work in the lives of others who brings them through their perseverance and his preserving grace through much in a fallen world. Paul is going to offer thanksgiving. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. This is an example of Paul exalting Jesus. We would normally expect someone, especially with a Jewish background, to say, I want to give thanks to God. I mean, God is the one who is the source of blessing and the source of peace and the source of mercy. It's important that Paul's language here be connected to this high view of Christ. Because he could say, I give thanks to God, but he's clearly saying, I give thanks to him who gives me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. This does not take away from glory to God. Glorying in Jesus is glorifying God. Christ Jesus, our Lord, is the eternal Son, the one who has been incarnate in human flesh, the one who's taken to himself a human nature. And Paul says, I give thanks to him who's given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord. In verse 2, he used that same phrase, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Who is Jesus to Paul? He is the Lord. Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, Lord of all, King of kings, Lord of lords, no one more supreme, highest authority of all, perfect sovereignty reigning in the world God has made. This is Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's the confession of the church that we join with Paul with that plural, our. Christ Jesus, my Lord, that would be true. Our Lord is even more broad, isn't it? The one who's given me strength is our Lord. Paul's faced much by the time he writes these words. He's been a believer at this point for approximately 30 years. It's a long time. He's not new to this. He's been learning and reading and studying and following and praying and rejoicing and testifying of Christ for decades. And he has suffered much. 
The book of Acts is before 1 Timothy. So that whole event of the Apostle Paul's conversion and missionary journeys and arrests and persecutions, that's already behind him. And so are the words of 2 Corinthians 11, written earlier in his ministry where he reflects on what he's experienced. 2 Corinthians 11, 24. He says, five times I received the hands, at the hands of the Jews the 39 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I mean, one shipwreck would be quite sufficient, you would think, right? Three shipwrecks. A day and a night adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. In danger from Gentiles and in the city and in the wilderness. Danger at sea and danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst. In cold exposure. Paul has gone through much. And he says, I want to give thanks to Christ Jesus who has given me strength. You know how he puts it in Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. How is it that Paul is adrift a day and a night in the open sea and beaten with rods and stone, all the various things he's experienced? He has the one who strengthens him. I give thanks to Him who strengthens me, Christ Jesus our Lord. This is his testimony. His testimony is not, I endured this because I'm so strong. I'm so powerful. I've just got a lot of internal get him up and go. He says, I want to give thanks to him who strengthens me because I'm weak. I'm weary. I'm frail. I'm beaten down. So how is it that I keep going? God has strength. He has strength for me. So Christ is the one who strengthens Paul. He's been upheld by Jesus' strength. Later in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's going to reflect on his trial. And he says, at my first defense, nobody came to stand by me. Just imagine the despair and the loneliness and the feeling of forsakenness that could easily overwhelm a human soul. He says, it all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. There it is. Paul, Paul's facing what he's facing. And sometimes he is all by himself. Where does his strength come from? His strength comes from Christ. Christ's strength enables Paul to endure all that he does, to go as far as he does, to speak of Christ, to fulfill the ministry as an apostle. In other words, God called him to it and he strengthened him for it. And those two ideas paired together matter. God didn't call Paul to serve him and then say, now Paul, I'm not really, I'm not really sure how you're going to accomplish this. You know, I wish you well. All right? Instead, he's, he's calling Paul and strengthening Paul. And that's why Paul is a faithful apostle. He was called to be an apostle. God judged him faithful here. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful. I think Paul is speaking now as someone who's been an apostle for decades. And how is Paul's life look in light of the grace and work of God in Paul's life? Paul has been faithful. I don't think he's talking about his former life as a persecutor of the church, that he was just really, really committed. And God said, hey, look at that person. He's really, really committed. What if I saved him? You know, I don't think this is a way of looking at uh, some sort of previous faithfulness. I don't think Paul looks at his former life as a life of faithfulness. 
Instead, it's his life in Christ. It's his life in pursuit of the kingdom. It's his life testifying of the risen Lord. And now, decades later, God has judged him faithful. Paul has run the race. In other words, he's keeping the faith. He's fighting the good fight. But we must ask, how did he become an apostle? Appointed. That's how. You see the language there at the end of verse 12? Appointing me. Paul didn't volunteer for this. He's looking at a way of life to which God has appointed him. Appointing me to his service. That is a recognition of divine sovereignty. God has so moved in the Apostle Paul's life that where Paul was going this way, God turned him around. He has appointed him with the divine call of grace, appointing me to his service. I think this is Paul's way of summarizing what Acts 9 narrates. You know, Acts 9 is narrating the scene where Paul is on his way to Damascus to continue his persecuting work against the church. And God, in sovereign grace and mercy, confronts the Apostle Paul, the heavenly Jesus, who calls out to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here, the Apostle Paul is appointed to divine service. No matter what Paul would have thought of his life prior to that, appointed to divine service prior is not what his life had consisted of. Divine um, rejection. Human rebellion. That's what Paul's life, even as a Pharisee of Pharisees, had consisted of. He becomes an apostle of Christ Jesus by divine sovereignty, appointed to that service. He has been judged faithful by God. And one of the ways God has shown his own faithfulness to Paul is he has strengthened Paul to the task he's called him to. There's such an encouragement there. Because Timothy is listening to Paul talk about the strength that comes from Jesus. Now, Timothy's not been called, like Paul was in Acts 9, to an apostleship encountering the risen Jesus. That's not Timothy's testimony. But you know what Timothy can testify of, even if his life doesn't look like the Acts 9 conversion experience? He can say, I can give thanks to him who strengthens me, Christ Jesus our Lord. And Timothy's going to need strength for this task. He's going to have to confront these erring false teachers who are leading people astray. And that's not all that would need to be dealt with in Ephesus. What does Timothy need for the job? The same thing Paul needs for his apostleship. The strength of Christ Jesus. What does he need for the hardships he's going to face and the difficulties that he's going to encounter and the courage he's going to need? Where's it going to come from? Well, it's not going to come because Timothy finally gets old enough and wise enough and smart enough and strong enough and clever enough. It's going to come from Christ or it's not going to come. Paul knows where strength comes from and he's saying to Timothy... I've been entrusted with the glory of the gospel of the blessed God. And he says, this is a gospel with which I've been entrusted. And I give thanks to God who gives me strength. I'm a faithful apostle. He's judged me faithful. I've been appointed to his service. And Timothy can know, well, if there is strength from Christ for Paul, there's strength from Christ for me. Christ does not have a a reservoir of strength that can be depleted. But Christ can strengthen without ever becoming weak. Christ can give and give and empower and uphold without ever growing weary. And so we come to him who gives strength to Paul and to this very day gives strength to us as people. 
One writer says it this way, why does Paul mention his strength and his source? Perhaps to remind Timothy of the resources for his flourishing because ministry is difficult, particularly when opposition arises. This writer goes on to say that there's a temptation to fall back in natural means and to draw on native capacities. And Paul knows there's no future in such a response. The self without divine enabling is no match for these problems. In other words, Timothy needs the strength of Christ Jesus. Maybe you come this morning and you do not feel strong. And you could look at the list of Paul and you could say, all right, I haven't been shipwrecked three times, but I've got my own list of hardships. I could write my own numbered list of afflictions. Then what we must do, friends, is to say, given what we have gone through, given what we do not know lies ahead, where does our strength and our enabling come from? It's the same place Paul looks. He looks to Christ our Lord. Christ our Lord. That the one born for us and laid in a manger reigns over all things with strength to sustain us. In verse 13, in the first part of the verse, let's look at Paul's past. Paul is contrasting something in verses 12 and 13. Paul's past at the beginning of this verse is contrasted with the end of verse 12. He's been appointed to his service. Formally, that's not the kind of thing he was about. Though formally I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent... Those are some interesting adjectives to describe his former life. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That's Paul's past. The word formally confirms that. He's talking about pre-conversion Paul. And these three ways of describing himself are worth reflecting on. He calls himself a blasphemer. What's a blasphemer? To speak evil of the Lord or to speak in a derogatory way of the name of Christ is to speak blasphemy. For Paul, his efforts in Acts are efforts to persecute the church and to oppose the Christ of the church. In this way, Paul says, here's a term that fit my earlier activity. I was a blasphemer. This is surprising for someone with a Jewish background to say, because he would be someone like all Jews in their right minds and reading scripture rightly. They would be concerned to uphold the commandments of God. To not take the name of the Lord their God in vain. They would be concerned to worship the living God and to serve Him only. And not to have other gods before Him. They would not want to commit blasphemy. And Paul says, that is exactly what I was doing. Paul didn't see it that way at the time. Paul saw it that way after he encountered Jesus. He looks back and he says, well, <laughs> looking back, he said, well, here's, I can evaluate what I've been up to. Blasphemous work. I didn't think of it as blasphemy, but I was opposing the living Christ. I was a blasphemer. And then he calls himself a persecutor. This persecutor term tells us that his blasphemy took on a form that looked like active opposition. Active opposition that took itself up against the church of Jesus Christ in very tangible ways. We're told in the book of Acts, by Paul's own testimony, he intensely sought to destroy the church. It was something he woke up thinking about. And he went to bed thinking about it. Trying to undermine in every way this movement in the first century Roman Empire that was proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth as Lord. He wanted it to stop immediately. 
and he wanted anybody confessing it to be brought to an account, he would not rest. The intensity with which the Apostle Paul opposed the church of Jesus Christ is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. The zeal that he had, the hatred, the righteous indignation, so he would have called it, that he felt inwardly. He persecuted the church. He calls himself, thirdly, an insolent opponent. An insolent opponent, this description here, this opponent that is insolent is one that is proud, arrogant. Insolence is about uh, severe disrespect and rudeness such, to such a degree that it could be called arrogance and self-exaltation. He says, that's the kind of opponent I was. Puffed up and exalting. Self-righteous and proud. I was an insolent opponent filled with what turned out to be unrighteous indignation. And when you read in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul before his conversion, we see that he stood in joy and affirmation at the death of a Christian named Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen is being opposed by a mob. And the Jews did not have formal processes by which they would execute a capital punishment. They relied on the Roman Empire for that. If the Jews themselves did put someone directly to death, they did so in defiance of Roman authority, and most likely out of the rash and impetuous actions of a mob-like mentality. In Stephen, Stephen provokes a group of people in Acts 7. And it tells us in Acts 8 that Saul approved of his execution. He didn't look away. It's exactly the kind of thing you wanted to see. And more the merrier. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we're told that Saul was ravaging the church... Quote, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He was going house to house, which should, should suggest not just going after individual Christians. Churches met in houses. So the Apostle Paul is disrupting, eagerly disrupting, knowingly disrupting the worship of Jesus that's taking place house to house where Christians are and where they're gathering. And he wants them committed to prison. In Acts 9, verse 1, right before his conversion, we're told he was still breathing threats and murder. That's what, that's what the writer says he was breathing. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It tells us in Acts 9, 1, he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which was a, a way of talking about uh, believers in Christ. They were followers of the way. If he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's going to capture them, take them, arrest them. So the Apostle Paul describes himself in this way in verse 13. None of these terms are flattering. Blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. It is a true description. It is not a flattering one. He rejoices in God's mercy and he boasts in the cross because Paul carried with him a sense of how sinful he was. He never forgot the former way of life God saved him from. And it's not because he would take joy in it. He was taking joy in the mercy of God as he reflected on what God saved him from. Paul's sinful past didn't thrill him. No doubt grieved him. Brought him great sorrow and frustration at his own capacity as a sinner. He knew the sort of man he had been. Now, you should know that not everybody around us thinks that drawing attention to human sinfulness is a good thing. 
A man named Robert Schuler used to be the pastor at the Crystal Cathedral in California. He died a few years back, but not before he wrote a book called Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. I already don't like that title. And he says in this book, I don't think anything's been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that's proven more destructive and hence counterproductive than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of making people aware of their lost and sinful condition. That's a real sentence from an actual book that a pastor wrote in California. I don't think anything's been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that's proven more destructive and the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. You say, well, Pastor, what do you think of that? I think that's one of the dumbest things that's ever been written in any book. That's the strategy of the devil himself to keep you from looking at your sinful state. To keep your eyes from acknowledging and recognizing your need for salvation. Paul wants to remember the mercy of God. And he is awakened to the mercy of God in having clarity about what his life apart from Christ has meant. He deserves judgment. He has been a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, an insolent opponent of Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a path of certain folly that ends in destruction and condemnation. And Paul recognizes that former life of mine. I don't ever want to forget what he saved me from. I don't ever want to forget the sort of man I was because I am new in Christ. So what happened to Paul? Well, we see his testimony here at the end of verse 13 and end of verse 14. Verses 13 and 14, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And this is Paul's testimony. What happened that took a former blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent of the church and made him someone who is willing to die for the gospel and who is strengthened by Christ himself? Paul receives mercy. When Puritan Thomas Goodwin translated this, he said, but I was bemercied. You ever heard that word before? That's a Puritan word. I was bemercied. Someone ever asks you, what happened in your life that you live the way that you do? Well, you could use Goodwin's translation. You could say to them, I was bemercied. And then they'll be really confused, and then you'll really have their attention. I was bemercied, Goodwin says. Receiving divine mercy is salvation for the sinner. There's no receiving of mercy without salvation. That is salvation. The mercy and compassion of Christ coming upon the life of the sinner, heading toward destruction and condemnation, where God's rescuing mercy saves them. Paul says, I receive mercy. Now, he could say, I received mercy because I was a sinner. Uh, but he's more specific than just speaking about his sinful, rebellious condition. He said, I was ignorant. I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. You know, what was Paul ignorant of? Well, Paul believed with his whole heart that Jesus was a false Messiah. Paul believed to his bones and was willing for all the zeal he could muster to work out in all of his sinister operations the conviction that he had to the core that God was being dishonored by this Christian movement. So Paul, in his ignorance, is defying God in his unbelief. Unbelief is what Paul says. Though he believed the Old Testament scriptures were from God, 
Though he believed that there were promises in the Old Testament and prophecies of a future Messiah, why would Paul say, I had unbelief? Because in light of whatever knowledge of Scripture Paul possessed, he refused to trust Christ Jesus. And refusing to trust Christ Jesus, no matter how much Old Testament he had memorized, he memorized it in his unbelief. Because he had rejected Christ Jesus. It is Christ who saves. Not any particular aspect of the Jewish faith that Paul might have known and relished and remembered. In his unbelief, he had rejected Christ. In his ignorance, he had opposed the plan of God that had been a plan to save sinners through his beloved son. Paul says, not on my watch. I'm going to destroy every Christian I can. I'm going to jail every Christian I can. I'm going to go to every house where I know they're meeting. I'm going to go from city to city, Jerusalem, Damascus, and beyond. I'm going to take them all out. And this zeal carried him through month after month, month after month. Here's what we should not conclude from, his, from part of his testimony here. That when Paul says, I acted ignorantly in unbelief, that he's somehow innocent. He does not believe he was innocent. There are sins of ignorance in the Old Testament. And that may be the operating category in Paul's mind. You can see that in Numbers 15 or in Hebrews 9. Where in these Old and New Testament passages, someone is doing what they think will be honoring to God. So Paul is doing what he's doing against the church, believing that he is honoring God. But he's acting ignorantly. He is sinning. He is rebelling, though he would not have classified it that way. He would have thought, of all things, that he was showing faithfulness. So he is guilty of wrongdoing. He does not merit God's mercy, but he is a sinner. And God has mercy on no one but sinners. And Paul here recognizes what he has done in Acts chapter 9. The clarity that the encounter with the Lord Jesus has brought him. He had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. The reason this might be worth bringing up to Timothy is because Timothy is dealing with something a little bit different from the false teachers. You see, the false teachers are those who claim to know, follow, and teach Christ. Paul would have never claimed that in his former life. That's not what he was claiming before Acts 9. That he would be following and teaching and proclaiming Christ. He was trying to oppose Jesus. See, here's the, the insidious danger about the false teachers. They're claiming to proclaim Jesus while at the same time in their teaching undermining the gospel of Jesus. That's wicked. And they can't claim that they haven't heard the truth. They have heard the truth and they've swerved from it. They've deviated from the sound doctrine and teaching that Timothy and others have received. These people are not innocent. They are guilty and not out of ignorance, but out of malice and wickedness. Their false teaching is leading people astray. Paul says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, the end of this verse uh, the, the end of our passage this morning, rather, in this whole verse, is Paul picturing a mighty fountain that overflows. The grace of our Lord overflowed. Now, in your house, if you're dealing with something that's overflowing, that's not a blessing to you. I'm telling you, we, we tend to think, all right, overflowing, bad thing. But when it comes to grace and mercy, certainly not. All the more, the better. All right, we want, we want the flowing 
and, and a striking experience of grace abounding in our lives and in our midst. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Not only him, but this is his testimony. We can all say this if we're in Christ. But I receive mercy, we could say. We could say in verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Not just for others, but for me. The flooding nature of God's grace acted upon me. And when grace from the Lord overflowed, what did it bring? What did it come with? He says, with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So when the mercy of God came upon Paul when he was bemercied, when, when grace overflowed for him, he has now faith in Christ, formerly unbelief. He has love for Christ, formerly hatred, blasphemy, and being a persecutor. In other words, what Paul had toward Christ and his church formerly, grace has overcome with flooding of life and new light. The grace of the Lord overflowed, and now Paul has faith in Christ Jesus, whom he had hated and persecuted. Only God can do that. Only God can take a terrorist against the Christian faith and make him one of the greatest evangelists that has ever walked the earth. Only God can do that. Only the mercy of God can overflow and grace overflow in such a way that takes this blaspheming, insolent opponent of the Christian faith, making him someone who's willing to be beaten within an inch of his life and ultimately to be martyred in the first century Roman Empire for Jesus' sake. Paul's heart is filled with love. He used to hate these people. He wanted to go to their homes. He wanted to drag them off to prison. He wanted to see those like Stephen die with his approval over their execution and now he loves them what takes somebody from being someone who hates the church to someone who loves the church only the mercy of God does that only the grace of God does that that overflows in such a way that faith comes and love in Christ Jesus you see it's union with Christ what does mercy bring about that's so life-changing what is grace overflow in, 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 in such a way that it leads to these things? How does it happen? Our union with Christ in his grace and mercy is how? This faith and love is in Christ Jesus. This is a life in Christ that Paul is talking about. He doesn't live according to the old man. He says, I put off that old man. Not him anymore. Oh, his shadow and his indwelling sins, well, they come for me. But I knew God's mercy's done a work. And Paul's remembering this and he thanks God because in Christ Jesus, he's been strengthened for the task God has called him to. Grace has overflowed for Paul. You see, when Paul says to Timothy, grace and peace to you, those aren't just words. Paul's life has been the recipient of overflowing grace. This is not just conventional prayer language. When Paul says grace and peace to you, Paul has received grace and peace and he wants this to others because it changes them. It changes them. In fact, faith and love are such a concise way to summarize the whole Christian life. You know, when grace has overflowed for Paul, it's made him someone who's trusting in Christ and walking in love. He has love for Christ and love for the people of Christ. He trusts Christ. His faith in him, he's responded, in other words, to what the truth of Jesus is. He believes it. Do you believe it? 
Would faith and love be what you say characterize your heart because of the grace of God at work in your life? As the grace of God overflowed in your life, you would say by your own testimony, and one of the ways you know that is because you believe what the Bible says about Jesus and you've come to love Jesus and the people of Jesus. That's the only thing to explain the transformation of a persecutor of the church like the Apostle Paul. Faith and love in Christ Jesus. The grace that's overflowing here can also be spoken of as grace abounding. This verse was very important to a man named John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And you know where Bunyan gets that title is from verse 14 and in verse 15, which we'll look at next week. Verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So why did the advent of Christ happen? Why did he come into the world to save sinners? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me and Bunyan never got over this. He entitled this so that when he is speaking, John Bunyan does, of his own life in Christ, he speaks of grace abounding to the chief of sinners. This language lifted right out of 1 Timothy 1. The Bunyan could try to describe with that title what it is to know Christ. To be a sinner to whom grace has greatly abounded. This kind of news, friends, is necessary because it strengthens Timothy and it strengthens us hearing testimonies, hearing Paul's testimony. We hear this and we rejoice in the gospel and we say, what great mercy this is. What great grace it is that is greater than our sin. We sing songs like that. Julia Johnston wrote a hymn. One of the verses is dark as the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look. There is flowing a crimson tide, wider than snow you may be today. You know, we sing lines like this and will in a moment as well. Because our conviction is the Apostle Paul's testimony of the grace, mercy, and strength of Christ is what every sinner in Christ Jesus bear witness to. We bear witness that God's grace has abounded to us. It came to us with faith and love, and we are not the same. We are not all that we will be, but praise God, we're not what we once were. We have been saved. We have been saved. We've been be mercied. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together and sing. Our Father, we pray now that as we sing these words, your spirit would continue working through your word in us, overflowing with all of your goodness and mercy. Praise be to your name. For though we were undeserving, and though we had merited only condemnation, great grace, surpassing mercy, you have overflowed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.